Pod Clubhouse. Yes, it's a good day for singing a song, and it's a good day. Welcome to Dreamland, the Hollywood podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about episode three, Outlaws. It was written by Ryan Murphy and Ian Brennan, the series creators, and it was directed by Michael Uppendahl. There was a lot of stuff going on in this episode tonight. Caroline, what'd you think of it? I loved it. I thought there was a lot of character development. We learned some people's backgrounds. We got a chance to see some of our newly added famous people from real world. And so that was exciting. I loved all of that. And we got to see Ernie in a little different role too. Yeah, you kind of got to see Ernie doing his moves. You could see where he not just sending out his boys to do work tonight. He was getting in the trenches, as it were, and providing, you know, some emotional support. It was interesting to see him in this veteran role stepping into this. George Cougar party. No cough either. He was able he was able to put off his black lung cough tonight. <laughs> I, I noted that. This episode had a lot of story movement. We set up a couple of possible rivalries. There were a couple of twist reveals. How about we break out tonight and we'll, we'll do it in the chunks of the episode. We'll talk about the stuff that came out. And our, I'm sure there'll be several tangents about the stuff that happened pre-George's party. Then all of the many things that came out at the party. And then there was uh, some interesting fallout post-party. Tonight's episode was called Outlaws. I could not think about what that meant. I, I, I noodled on it for a bit, but my brain wasn't coming up with anything. What, what do you think Outlaws was, was referring to? I think that probably the biggest Outlaws in this episode would have to be Dick Samuels and Ellen at the end in terms of their willingness to change the way they do things. But then when I thought about it, there were lots of small moments of being an outlaw, of like, you know, being a rebel, going against the grain, Jack had a moment. Archie had a moment. Rock slash Roy had moments. Everybody had like these little moments of being an outlaw, like trying something different. Camille did. Um, So I think that's where we're going with that. I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. There definitely was a lot of against the grain tonight, against the Hollywood system, which isn't a part of the thesis statement that we talked about last time. It's time to give Hollywood a rewrite idea. If you're going to give Hollywood a rewrite, it makes sense that you're going to have a bunch of outlaws. So at the very top of the episode, we learn from Ernie, the boys have been recruited for a Sunday afternoon evening party soiree uh, at a director who was a real person, one of the several real people we see tonight. His name was George Cooker, a very famous Hollywood director from yesteryear. Uh, his Wikipedia page called him, if I remember correctly, the head of the gay subculture in Hollywood at this time. These Sunday parties were a real thing. They were for his closest friends and uh, certainly catered to homosexuals who could not otherwise live their life out loud. They did provide, or it was not uncommon for young men to come with them. And uh, a lot of what we've seen tonight seems to pan out to a version of what really happened. What do you think about the way that Ernie handles Jack when he expresses like his disgust or uninterest in the party? What do you think about how Ernie was like, you know what, let me like weave you a tale about you not being able to show your interest in girls? I mean, I think that's always an effective argument whenever someone gets squeamish about anything queer if you turn it around on them to remind them how it would feel to someone else to listen to their straight problems and how uncomfortable it may be. I I think it's done for a laugh a little bit, the way Ernie is this defender of rights and this patriot. You know, it goes back to the Cole Porter thing. You know, if Cole Porter, you know, needs to get off with your mouth or hand so he can write amazing songs, then goddammit, go give him a hand. He's a national treasure. I think the larger point is that people have the right to be themselves. And if George provides an an environment for people to be that, who the fuck is Jack 
to object. We're, we're all working for the same thing here, right? We all want to be famous. We all want to do what it takes to get to that next level. I think Jack is a little bit of a little bit of a baby in some ways. Not that he should be compelled to do things sexually that he does not want to do. He should not. No one should be able to do that. But his just kind of patent, oh, Lordy, Lord, I can't look at another penis. You know, that kind of attitude that Jack has is uh, laughable by half to me. I find it hard to think that Jack hasn't like glanced over to check out the competition in the locker room with the gym. I think I'm team Ernie in that when it comes to that discussion. How about you? I think it's important to keep coming back to that moment of feeling squeamish about those things because I think that there's audience members that might feel that way by having Jack do that and having Ernie give his example basically of how would you feel if this was you I think that that's directed at the audience. And so at least that way they're like, oh, okay, okay, yeah. I think I think I do. I do see where you're going with this. And so now I'm okay with this party idea. So I think it's a good idea. I think that they need to keep checking back in with the audience like that and saying, I think we're pushing too far. Well, how would you feel? Okay, let's continue with the story. I, I think that's a great point. And I think it also goes to, we talked about setting the show in the 1940s is a smart idea because it makes the arguments and the views that they're presenting more palatable, if, if that's the right word, for audiences to digest because it's not directly assaulting their sensibilities in a modern way. And, and I think this plays into the same idea of he's not saying, what if a modern day Hollywood star wants to have secret gay encounters do like a role reversal how would you feel if it, you know if the tables were reversed and we lived in a world where heterosexuality was uh, thought gross and not acceptable but by putting it again in the 1940s in that context I think it is an effective way to get people to see the larger argument without putting up their defense shields right away agreed related to that Jack comes out with this phrase that I have never heard. He says, that's queer as a French horn. I have never heard, I, I like the French horn. I think it has a very lovely sound. I, I, queer as a $2 bill is the phrase I am familiar with. Have you ever heard the phrase queer as a French horn before? I don't believe I have, no. We heard Molly Houses a, a couple of times again tonight. You know, that was a phrase we heard last week. Oh, do you know what it has to do with? The twisted nature of the horn and or the bent nature of the horn. Mm -hmm. Wow. That makes that yeah. phrase even worse. I always took queer as a two dollar bill as just something that you don't see very often, and so you're not like exactly comfortable with it. Twisted and bent, man, oof, mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. even more pejorative, if anything could be. <laughs> I mean, just what I feel like about French culture from just stereotypically that they are like more sexual, or that they would be more open sexually. So when you add the French part in there too, I feel like you get like a little little extra. <laughs> Their fluidity. Mm hmm. Yeah, or, or just that they think Americans are very uptight about sex and very uptight about the way we do things. That's actually a perfect segue into my next question that we have not actually really talked about. We, we've talked about how sexy the show is, uh, and we've we've said, I think, in both episodes so far that it was, it's very sexy in a seductive way. But there is nudity. We, mm -hmm. have se we have seen girls' breasts in both episodes so far. But tonight, we get to see some full frontal dickage. And it made me wonder what your feeling is about that, because that is remains even on your steamiest HBO show, your most push the boundary cabler show, FX or, or AMC, wherever it is, full frontal male nudity, you know, showing penises remains very taboo and very not done. What's your feeling about? 
about it. Is it a double standard? Is it time that we have more penises on TV? What, do you have a view about it? In this particular case, it was done in a very natural, normal kind of way. This was a pool party. It was something where they already told you that people were going to be very free with themselves and kind of do their own thing. I kind of anticipated that. I don't know that they had to show it, like just showing like side butt and stuff like that when they're walking by is enough for me. Like, I think that's sexy and everything. So I don't necessarily need to see the dick, but I mean, it doesn't bother me anymore. I got my like way over back at Westworld when they like had that moment of dick with Sizemore. And uh, after that, I was like, you know what? Yeah, I had kind of that whole conversation. What was that two years ago? And now I'm like, yeah, it's fine. So, you know, provided like anything else, it's not just gratuitous, just doing it for the sake of doing it. Then I'm completely okay with it. It does not bother me. In fact, I kind of prefer it in terms of just being a more balanced way that you're showing everyone that if you're going to talk about the sexuality of Hollywood or even just generally being, you know, open about sexuality, then I loved it that they showed the heterosexual couple and the gay couple having sex in seductive ways. Then if we're going to see, you know, boobs over here, we should see dicks over here. Why not? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, everyone's free with their bodies, that kind of thing. I would like to say that I'm not so sure that those bodies 100% existed back then, because if you know all the people who are playing all the rest of the roles, no one looks like those men, (laughs) you know, like that is a very built, much more modern look that men can have. So most of the men of this time were very slim and slender. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there was even on your biggest heartthrobs, it was a lot more in their voice and their face. Their sexiness was derived from it wasn't from really chiseled bodies. It wasn't from the size of those glutes. Those were big glutes. You don't usually yeah. see that from that time. I mean, the casting director lives in 2020, doesn't live in 1940s. I agree with you. I don't think it was gratuitous. And even if it was, listen, I like gratuitous boobs. So it would be a double standard of me to be against gratuitous dicks. I heard a conversation about this about a year ago some podcast I was listening to. It was a comedy podcast, but they were ta- they were talking about nudity on TV. And the feeling was, if the choice is less boobs and no dicks, or boobs, but we also have to show dicks, then, then show dicks. It is right. It is silly to think in this day and age that we are so prudish that we can't handle male genitalia if we're all so willing to, or, and, or at least straight guys anyway, are so willing to accept and encourage female nudity. Yeah, completely. In the show where the message is, we're all equal. Every situation should be treated equally. It's really important that you show you show girls and guys naked. It's, it's very important to the show to do that. Otherwise, you're, you're just perpetuating the, you know, women are, are, are to be naked in, in objects and men are not. And it's like, no, 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 no. There were some men in here we were supposed to treat as objects for sure. Right. And and if anything, this show is more about male sexuality so far even than female sexuality, Mm -hmm. though Camille maybe tests that later on tonight. We're getting to that. But I mean, this show is very much about queer sexuality. Let's say that. And so I, I think it would be dishonest and disingenuous if they didn't. I mean, when Ernie, it's Ernie, for one thing. And if he's talking about this party and what we could expect here and, and he's getting his guys to go along, it would seem weird. It's it's the same way that TV shows don't allow cursing. Cursing is a natural way that humans speak in the real world. No one says fudge fiddlesticks. They don't say that in real life. If art it should be a reflection of real life, then 
it should be a reflection of real life in all aspects. And men get naked just like women do. Can I tell you that really the funniest like thing about that for me is really when the guy does like the cannonball, really, I was not like, oh my God, he's naked. I was more just like kind of like amused by the idea of like, man, dicks like fly all over the place when you like run and jump and do stuff like that. It just was like kind of humorous to me from that aspect, but not at all from like a, oh, I'm so like offended. It was more like just like, oh, geez, how do you do stuff? Like when the, the it seems like it would be kind of uncomfortable to like worry about like, it's flapping around. That's all. Like, that was the funny thing. Sure. And, and I think very much in the same way that when men take time to stop and think about all the running videos that they like to see girls do because of who does like a good boob jiggle. If you think about it, that's got to be kind of painful. You know, that is an exposed body part slapping against your body rather hard. And depending on your endowment could be very painful. You know, it was one of those things where it was naked, but it wasn't sexual. Yes. Not that I think my feeling would have been different either way. You know what I mean? I don't know. It seems like <laughs> it, it seems like an issue that people would clutch their pearls about even in 2020. And it just seems silly. I think that you and I are pretty woke about when it comes to sexuality, especially on shows. Like I'm very willing to see it. And the more natural you can make it and the more real life you can make it, the happier I am. I did not want this to look like a porn show mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. this from the standpoint of those guys were just walking and laughing and playing and joking around like friends would, or like you would act as a, at a party. It would be more gratuitous to me if they were like, like we saw, I'll give Westworld as an example. The pre-planned choreographed orgy scene is more gratuitous to me than guys who don't have anything on just playing at the pool like you would had they been wearing bathing suits. Like that felt less odd or unusual or anything. It just felt like fun. <laughs> yeah, I have in my notes. This is a party you want to be at, and not necessarily because I of did. the not because of nudity, but it just seemed like a fucking fun party. The the people that were there, they hear those stories that those people are swapping at that dinner table. This is a party I want to be at for sure. I love to dance. I would love to feel like you were at a place where there was like such little judgment. Everyone could just strip down and just like be swimming in the pool and having fun. It looked legitimately like fun. It absolutely did. A hundred percent. So Jack needs to get over himself is the first point. And two, stop clutching your pearls out there if you can't handle a penis on TV. <laughs> Let, let's move Let's move to one of our couples in the show. Let's start talking about Archie. And can we agree we call him Rock? or Rock Hudson from now on in Ditch Roy. Yes. We join Archie and Rock, and Rock is recounting his meeting with Henry. Archie is supportive of letting Henry suck his dick. That's what you need to do to seal the deal, and that's what this town is about. Were you surprised that Archie was so cool with it? I think that Archie has been here for so much longer than most of our other characters in terms of understanding what Hollywood is. He's already sold a script. So he's been around the block here. I think he's just more resigned to the idea that this is what it is and I'm not going to be embarrassed about it. I just have to do what I have to do. I thought one of the most honest lines that he said this entire episode was when he said, I do this because I have to keep the lights on. Like, keep moving. You know, like, stop talking to me about anything else. The only thing that maybe would have surprised me is is the fact that he didn't maybe ask Rock a little bit more like, are you okay about this? Or like, are you okay? Personally, are you okay? Because, you know, this is going to keep happening, that kind of thing. Just because of his feelings for Rock, that he knows he's so innocent and that he's just so new. I think of the two of them, I think Archie is much more reserved in showing his feelings, in, in showing his cards to Rock than Rock is to Archie. Rock seems much more all in, 
even at the top of this episode, he has like legitimate guilt about what happened with Henry, I think in large part because of how he is feeling about Archie and is trying to make Archie see that. I think Archie is playing it much cooler, uh, at least at the beginning of this episode and through the party too, we're going to see, you know, he's like, you know, bitch, this is my business. Like you, <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, keep the lights on. I, you know, he's following Ray's advice. Got to do what you got to do to follow your dreams, which is essentially what he tells Rock here. If Henry is going to represent you and to make that happen, he needs to suck your dick. Then via Gundias, you know, good blowing. <laughs> at least that he's not going to take it personally to their relationship was, right. which is an important part to this whole thing is that I think that there's some layers here that are starting to form that are really interesting, including the concept of control because control is really rampant throughout this whole thing. Who's using control in a good way? Who's using it in a bad way? And I thought the way that Archie kept mentioning like, Hey, you don't control me. You need to back off. Even though rock is the more raw one and the one who seems, you know, to be more innocent and more everything. He also is the one who would tend to cling on harder, would grasp harder, squeeze harder. And Archie's like, hey, man, I'm all in. You don't have to squeeze me like that. And P.S., you don't control me. Really important comments were made between the two of them. But my most favorite moment here in understanding the two of them was getting a chance to have Rock tell his story of where he came from. The first of several reveals uh, this episode. What, what did you think of the absentee dad and the essentially crazy mom? And the abusive or neglectful stepfather. That's an important portion too. It made a lot of sense that he would expect Henry to play that fatherly role and that he sort of, I don't want to say expected, but certainly accepted on some level the abuse that came with it, including the way that he's talked to, certainly the way that he's treated. He was already groomed for that since he was five. He, he was perfect to be grabbed up onto and taken in. I know there's so many people who have those types of stories like Marilyn Monroe, insane mother to the point of turning over to, you know, the, her kiddo over. And then, you know, she was abused. And so when she came to Hollywood for her, it was like just, just all kinds of boundaries are already down. You know, you can easily take advantage I thought that they set him up really, really well. And I thought that Archie's ability to kind of answer the call of like, can you be Rock's soft place was really sweet. What did you think? I think it definitely helped inform who Rock is. All of his choices with Archie make a lot more sense. The clinginess that we're getting from him make a lot more sense. The the idea, the innocence he has with Dick in this episode, like you said, the father figure he's seeking from, from Henry, the way he's clinging to Archie almost like a like a life vest of love all makes a lot more sense when you understand where he is coming from. Say, especially at such a young age, when he said he just hasn't had anyone taking care of him in a long time. Right. Five is really, really little to be like doing your own food and stuff like that. So I appreciated the the extreme sense of him having to be alone. I think it made an impression on Archie too. Not, he didn't recoil, but I think he took a step back and understood who Rock was and where Rock was coming from more. And, and I think it will inform how he interacts with and loves and expresses his feelings for Rock going, going forward. I like that that moment also gave us a chance to see that Archie came from what sounds like a pretty supportive family. That, you know, he knew how to cook and he knew how to do things because his mom was a good cook and she showed him how and that kind of stuff. So... I appreciated how expanded both of their backgrounds. Let, let's keep going with these two because we, next we go into the big setup that we get in this episode where we're setting up going down uh, for future episodes, the role of the boyfriend in Peg in uh, Archie and Ray's movie. They are going to be casting as Claire told Jack last week, they're going to be casting the boyfriend role and Archie is telling rock that he's perfect for the boyfriend role. And at the same time we see Jack, 
invading Dick Samuel's lunch at the commissary and, <laughs> and pleading for a chance to, to get a screen test for the boyfriend role also. Let, let's talk about Jack first. So, so what one did you think Jack is just totally obnoxious sitting down at someone's lunch? I don't know. If I was having a, pro, a private lunch, clearly, I, I think that would send the symbol, I don't want company if I don't have company. I think I'm on Dick's team here that I would be annoyed if Jack sat down. But what was your take on how Jack handled that and advocated for himself in this scene? I'm with you that because you know that Dick probably eats lunch down there most days, it's would be well known that it's like rude to go over to an executive. I mean, you're on contract, you're in the building, you're taking classes. There would be some obvious like, and so you don't get up in people's faces. You just act like you belong there and act like you're part of the process. Maybe if they were talking in the hallway, like just walking and maybe ask some questions. But you're right to like plant himself at his table and be like all up in his face. No, 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 no. Not right. Also, second offense party foul on Jack's part, because last week we saw him sneaking into the commissary for a coffee just so he could ambush Ellen when uh, she came out of his screen test, when uh, the executives were watching his screen test that went so poorly. He He snuck in there because he just couldn't help himself. Jack needs to fucking learn how to chill. He's got no chill whatsoever. Yeah, he's acting more like he's somebody who invaded the building as opposed to someone who belongs there. And if you don't act like you belong there, you're going to quickly not belong there. <laughs> How many times do you and I give advice to people? It's important to act like you have been there before. All of the time, all my whole life. I think I say that to people all the time. I'm like, just act like you've been here before. <laughs> and if you do, people will just go along with you. But you, if you stick out like a sore thumb like he is, I think it's inviting all kinds of trouble. It's also not really allowing you to become part of the process. If he would spend more time talking to people in his like acting classes that I assume he has, or even just talking to Claire, having an actual conversation with Claire, who would be like a fellow his level person, he would be much better off. He would understand how this works and not be just like jumping into people's faces. Or if he's going to jump the ladder of power, jump to people that you actually have a relationship with. Go give this spiel that you give the Jack to Ellen. You know she has the ear of the studio because she got you a contract. Go talk to Avis who you have a relationship with, maybe the strongest relationship with. And she's, you know, the wife of the head of the studio. Use your contacts that you actually have instead of being this obnoxious, like, yappy dog at Dick Samuel's heels. Remember how I said, like, previously, I was like, I'm really excited for the gas station to be a setting for us because I think it's a time when Jack and Archie and the other guys can ask a lot of questions and give information to each other. Like, that setting is where I think my mind was going in terms of things like, how do I get a screen test? How do I handle this? I thought the other guys at the gas station and Ernie would be where those conversations were having, not him jumping to Dick Samuels. Does that make sense? It does, though. The guys at the gas station on his level all seem as clueless as he does. I mean, even Archie is still feeling his way out. And he seems like he's been the one who's been in this scene the longest. And he's still just at the beginning of his career. But yeah, you would think Ernie would be. But he has two legitimate connections high up in the studio. You don't need to go to Dick Samuels. He, he just came off as so obnoxious here. And then he starts acting. He starts doing the, the lines during the oh lunch, which, God. I mean, dude, you got to take the temperature of the room. <laughs> Dick already doesn't want you here. You're already getting a begrudgingly screen test. And he says, you're not a good actor, but Ellen must see something in you that I don't. That is not a ringing endorsement that says to me, now I should begin acting for you here at the lunch table. 
You know, I don't know. I completely agree. He's been given access. He should not exploit that. And that, I guess, is what I'm really trying to say. I know there's times when we're places because we have press access and talent will walk by. It is not the right time to bombard them. You've been given access to a more private space, the commissary. Act right. Act like it's a private space. Give them space. So true. I was covering something at the Paley Center in New York last year after a screening and I ran to the bathroom before some questions were going to start. And I found myself at the urinal next to one of the actors who was on stage. Not the time to start asking him questions about his motivations and and, and what he was <laughs> thinking about during the role. You, again, you got to act like you've been there before. There will mm-hmm. be a time and a place to have these conversations with someone like Dick Samuels. And by the way, unless you're probably a fucking A-lister, how many people do you think really, how many actors and actresses really have that kind of access to Dick Samuels? My guess would be not many. That's what I mean. Don't exploit it, man. Like, be cool. Play it cool. Act like you belong there. Be a face that's familiar to him. Be a smiling face. You know, maybe offer to get him a, a coffee or something. Like, be be happy. Be positive. But don't be like that. <laughs> Let's contrast Jack now against Rock, who is going through a similar thing with Archie. And he starts also reading lines out loud, except for Archie is convinced at the end of it that he is perfect for the role. He should get a screen test. Did you catch his response to Rock, though, when Rock says, well, baby, did I get the part? Oh, absolutely. When he's like, you are sleeping with the the fucking lowest guy on the totem pole, least powerful. I was like, oh, damn. But when you just said that, that reminded me, Dodoy, that's why Jack can't talk to Archie at the gas station. They were saving Archie to have the advice talk with Rock. So obviously that's the way it has to pan out. You know, like Archie is with Rock. He's his support system. So we're not going to see those gas station scenes I was thinking of between Archie and Jack. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I actually hadn't even thought about it, but that does make sense. I mean, they're going to have to break down on on roles. You know, it's interesting in the opening credits that the only two people standing next to each other when they climb the Hollywood sign, and there's room on the Hollywood sign for them all to have their individual pedestals. Jack and Archie are standing next to each other. I thought that was an interesting symbol. I tried to note who grabbed whose hand. So Jack was up above Archie and grabs his hand. Mm-hmm. Like at one point, Camille and Raymond look at each other across the way as like mm-hmm. supportive little faces. And and actually Claire reaches her hand down to Camille and helps her up too, I believe, right? Am I saying that right? Do you remember? I don't remember. The only no, one I'm gonna I remember. get scared. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna pull back on that girl's one. But for sure it's Jack who yep. reaches back to Archie, yes. for sure. So I like that dynamic. And I, I don't know, I this is one of the few shows I have not skipped through the credits yet so far. Because I, I like them. But I noted that today for some reason. And in watching this episode, I thought about it, that I like the idea that Jack has enough sense not to exploit this new friendship that he has with Archie. Because we all need connections, right? We all need connections in the business of whatever business we're in. That's how you go further. That's the real way. That's not the way you tell your kids when they're young. But the real world, the world moves with connections. But you also need friends. You need people who are you are not dependent on for fucking or for business, right? You need someone who can just be your friend, who you don't owe anything to and who doesn't owe anything to you. I like the idea that Jack and Archie can just have a good friendship born out of this gigolo based doing what you have to do in order to move your dreams forward and pay the bills idea where they could just be friends. I like that. I don't want Jack to exploit Archie in any kind of way. I just want them to be friends. I agree with you. The characters need to serve each other in completely different ways here. 
<laughs> serve. You. But the uh, I'm the writer, you're fucking the least powerful person in Hollywood made me laugh because I had a conversation with someone about two years ago. I asked him about a change to a movie he had written. He said, I wasn't told about it. He said, I'm the writer on the movie. I am the least powerful person. Most people will find out about changes to the script when they go to see it before me. He, he's like, the writer is always the last to know. No one gives a shit and no one asks. It so echoed this comment from Archie that I was like, huh, that's really true. And it came rushing back to me. I was like, that's, that's some real shit that I've learned. That's so interesting and not what I think that the majority of people who are not in the industry would think, because I think that most of us believe the writer is one of the most powerful as they are the ones that are actually feeding the actors the lines. They are the ones that someone must pitch an idea to them and then they come up with these perfect phrases and stuff like that. But fascinating to figure out like, you know what? No, it once that they hand it over. I mean, basically everyone else is going to manipulate their baby there. And that's fascinating. I really didn't think about that. I nestled it away as just a nugget, you know, uh, a thing I learned today. It's never come up in my brain before. And then I hear Archie say that tonight. And I was like, holy shit, that totally gels. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure that was born out of Ryan or Ian's experience when they were writing this episode. But it's true. If you think about movies, when someone says that's a Spielberg movie or that's a, a Coppola movie, they're not talking about them in their position of writers. They're talking about them as the directors of the movie. Very much so. Yeah. It's interesting that the writer does get really lost in it. I think it's fascinating the jobs that people want having to do with the industry versus who has power in the industry. I think that you've heard plenty of people say, I want to write a movie or I want to write a TV show. But I don't know any little kid who's like, I really badly want to be a producer. <laughs> I really want to be like something. There's all these behind the scenes things that people don't really talk about nearly as much as things like there's only some basic things like the guy who's in front, who wrote it, maybe the director, but I feel like people don't even understand what directors do all the time. There's so many more people who have so much more control behind the scenes. No one says I want to be a studio head. What would we call what Ellen and Dick do? What is their actual job? Would we say just executives at the studio? I think Dick is a producer. Ellen is a, I don't know what her role would be as an acting coach. I mean, I think she's an in-house acting coach because in the studio system, you signed a contract with MGM or Ace Studios. And so that always puts you in line to be in their movies, either in a lead or a supporting role. You couldn't audition for a Sony movie here and a Warner Brothers movie there or an MGM movie. You, you signed with MGM and you just did MGM movies and until your contract was broken or until a powerful director or producer took you with them to another studio. So I think Ellen comes into play as an acting coach for the in-house signed talent in this. And, you know, we saw last week with the actresses, you know, she she's charged with training up the stable of actresses that Ace Studios has on contract. I think Dick Samuels is a would be a would be a production executive. He, he's one of the people who greenlights the movies. He spends Ace's money. You know, maybe Ace has to give the formal blessing on it, but he's basically doing what Dick tells him. Dick, Dick has the real power there. Yeah, that makes sense. And definitely Ellen, I feel like having seen her sit in on the screen testing, she clearly has some votes and influence on what happens in terms of the production side of things, being able to give her opinion. But again, those are jobs that are so powerful that you have so rarely heard anyone say they want to do or be, you know, it, it's true. I think it's funny how people don't really understand who has the power. Again, I've never heard of anyone say, I want to be a talent agent. They always want to be the talent, but I rarely hear people say they want to be the agent. 
Sure, it's the you know it's like the mafia, it's the invisible hand, right? I mean that's yeah, that's. I want to be an agent, actually. I'd rather be an invisible hand. The you know the Italian phrase for mafia is cosa nostra. It's this thing of ours, but it talks about the invisible hand that moves it. Or Adam Smith writes about the invisible hand that moves the economy. You know, Hollywood is moved by these these invisible power brokers that you don't know unless you're in the business. Everyone in the business knows Henry Wilson, knows Dick Samuels. But mm-hmm. mom and pop going, you know, taking their kids to the movie house in in Toledo don't know who they are. They've never heard of those names. You made me laugh when you said, I, I've never heard of anyone that says they want to be a producer. And my brain went immediately to the Mel Brooks musical and movie producers because Leo Bloom sings a song. I want to be a producer. He's the, he's the only person in recording Right, history. right. And that's kind of like why it's like extra funny that he sings it. <laughs> it's because, right, because he's singing about a part that like nobody ever talks about wanting to be that. We found this book a long time ago at like some secondhand bookstore that was a little kid's book of how a movie gets made. And it actually did just like how you have like a farm book that has like each animal and it names them. It, you open it up and it shows you a movie set and it shows you this is where the director sits. This is where, you know, craft services is with the real words and the real... It was the best present I ever gave my kids, and they still talk like that. Like they're like if I if I interrupt my my uh, my daughter, she'll go, "Don't cut away from me." Like she says, like, "Cut away!" Like I'm a cameraman. <laughs> like, I love that. I'm like pity. Like yeah, and they turn down the lights as if the whole house is a theater. Like we're gonna turn down the lights now. I'm like, turn off the lights. They talk like we are actively being filmed at all times. You don't know. Wait, 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 <laughs> wait until you guys are a little bit older and they come out with a screening. Uh, I just thought that was so funny. And what a cool book, though. Don't you kind of wish that we had like more stuff like that? Like oh, a yeah. children's book of theater? Like what are all the different roles and what do people do and stuff like that? It's fascinating how much of this show we're getting a chance to see the behind the scenes roles and then what the hierarchy really is. My son is a fledgling theater kid, and uh, so I am actively trying to show him the world and and the different things that are available in that world. And anytime I find something that's kind of accessible for his age, that's a behind the scenes kind of thing, I try and show him because I think it's important to know how it all works. You know, just the way it's important to know how a car engine works, at least on a rudimentary level. You know, there are a lot of things that it's interesting to know how it works. And I think how movies, television, theater, how all of the behind the scenes things that you don't see. Like I watch the credits. I love sitting through the credits of a movie because I love seeing how many hundreds and thousands of people it takes to make a movie. It's fascinating. All the different roles. You're so right. We also sit through the credits because of the two kids who absolutely will not leave until they see every single person's name and everything that they did. And they will be like, I did not know that Don was in this one. And you're like, he wasn't an actor. He was like a grip. And you're like, are you kidding me? (laughs) But they like pay attention. I think it's craziness, but also amazing, you know, to actually pay attention to all that stuff. Bob made key grip in this film. I'm so proud of him. You know, he's he's yeah, not a, he's yeah, not a, he's not really a, like that. He's not a gaffer anymore. Way to go, Bob. Mm-hmm. So Right. I I think it's so funny. But it's really true and really shows like this give us an opportunity to show all those different aspects of the industry in such a, a more honest way. But this is the part where I I do keep going back to that how much do they need to be truthful? In terms of, or accurate is a better word. How accurate do they need to be when people are getting, quote unquote, their education from this show, right? Like that always is going to kind of keep haunting me about like the, I hope everything, I hope they're being really accurate about some of these things because 
Some people are going to walk away truly thinking this. I hope it's real. I mean, it all seems very authentic, but isn't that the point? I mean, that goes back to our first episode, though. That's even more problematic when things like this seem authentic and and then you're because then you're not vetting it. It seemed right. Mm -hmm. It felt right. Yeah. Cut to something that actually I think was a little distasteful for both of us. And it's part of a larger discussion. So it's time to talk about Uncle Henry. That's his term he uses, not mine, because I think that's gross. But uh, Rock shows up a little bit late for at the restaurant to, to meet Henry. Henry goes right away into a tirade about being late. All of the rules that Rock needs to be aware of if he wants to continue to have Henry as his agent, because Henry will fire him with without any kind of further thought if he breaks any of these rules. What did, what did you think of Henry's several, several rules? I have mixed feelings about Henry because in this particular scene, in most of the scenes, I'm very clear about how I feel about him. When it comes to being late, I think that it is very important for an actor to be punctual and to be on set exactly when they need to be and or early. That is so key. And if you were an agent, I could see where you want to hammer that home right at the get-go. That makes sense to me. I'm not going to be ugly about that. It's the way that he talks to him and his just like super abusive talk that is just like grating for me. I don't care about people saying fuck at all. The amount of times he yells at him and just wants to like rip him apart, that hurts my heart. You know, I don't feel like you have to be quite like that. However, people are lining up for Henry to be their agent. I'm sure you don't want to waste your time on someone who's not going to be respectful about your time. So I don't know. I mean, how do you weigh it out? As a general rule, I don't like lateness. I try to be punctual or... I don't think I necessarily subscribe to on time, you're late. You know, if you're 10 minutes early, you're, you know, you're on time. I try very hard not to be late places. So I totally, it's also a sign of professionalism. You know, Henry's time is very valuable as he will be the first one to tell you. Uh, and as Lana Turner learned to her detriment also. And so I'm with him on there. Again, I think he's got a very grating and very specific way of speaking. Well, I was going to say a way of speaking to Rock, but we see later he speaks that way to Rock in front of other people. He is very verbally abusive. Yeah. Okay. Degrading, I, very degrading. Very degrading. But I was more interested in the advice about Rock needs to masturbate every day. So as to not be tempted to go to the Molly houses, as to not get arrested, to not do anything to reveal his homosexuality that would put Henry in a bad light because Henry will fire him because Henry's reputation is everything to Henry. Well, what did you think of that kind of advice? I think that type of advice is almost always given to men, which is interesting because obviously women masturbate too. I understand the concept that I've seen it tons in sports where it goes the other way. Like I want you to be really amped up for the game. So don't have a release. So I get that. So if you go with that, then I guess you have to go the other way and say, if I want you to be super chill and not thinking about sex and not being turned on at the drop of a hat, then I guess I need you to. It's blunt AF, but it's probably pretty good advice. I thought it was also good advice. I totally see where Henry is coming from, because I think this is actually good advice in 2020 for everyone. How many actors and actresses get in trouble because they go and act in a club a way they shouldn't act? Good God, how many actors pick up hookers because they can't keep it in their pants? You know, if you just tickle the pickle then the idea is that you'll be fine and your urges will be sated. Now, that's probably not true for everyone because people are engaging in those actions probably more for different reasons than actual sexual desire. But as a baseline, your reverse coach analogy totally makes sense to me. Probably even more so in an environment where revealing 
your homosexuality is a death knell to your career at this time. And that you're in a hyper-sexualized, hyper-beautiful um, surrounding. So it's not like you just go to work and everybody's going to look typical kind of whatever attractiveness. In theory, on a set, you're probably surrounded by the most gorgeous people of all shapes and sizes and, and genders and whatnot. So you you need to have your sexuality taken down a notch, you know, sure. because it'd be easy to be turned on by any of these people. Brock is going for top echelon beefcake leading man. He is going yeah. to be inundated with sex professionally, like legitimately professionally all of the time. So yeah. that's constantly revving yourself up into the red zone just to do your job kind of correctly. You would hate to embarrass someone like, you know, if you have to just hold a woman, like caress her or something like that, and you get like a hard dick, I mean, that would be humiliating. You need to be in control all the time of that. And I could see we're like taking the edge off would be smart. It reminds me of something about Mary when they're like, you got to take the edge off before a date, don't you know? So that that's not on your mind. I feel like it's that same kind of thinking. The advice also is you, you release beforehand and it makes you go longer the next time too. I think the advice here is pretty solid. The whole Lana Turner thing was pretty funny about pronouncing her name right or else he'd be fired. I just thought it was funny the bluntness with which he was saying all these things would get him fired. Someone with Rock's naivete, definitely advice he probably needs to hear. The Lana Lana thing I thought was interesting because you and I have seen that on Making the Cut podcast about when people but they don't know a designer. There is a pissiness when you say this is a disrespect to our industry, when you can't pronounce people's names or you don't know certain people's act, you know, work. This is disrespectful. I think that crosses like all professions. It is like a little shot across the bow. Like you need to learn what people's names are in this industry and you need to like get with it about who are, you know, who's playing what roles and stuff. So I think, again, like Rock does need to get with it, don't you think? For sure. And uh, this will play into a conversation we're going to have in a couple of minutes about the dinner scene at George's party, where I don't think Henry, I think how he handled it was not great, but I don't think his ire was completely displaced. So he gives them all of these, these sex rules about carrying on as a professional in Hollywood. And that essentially tells him he has to come by his place that night. And the, the intimation is sex for favors. You know, I can get you that screen test, but you need to be at my place this evening. So I thought it was whiplash jarring that Henry slides from gear to gear so easily and without missing a beat almost makes it seem more than just predatory. It almost seems like like a, almost like a sociopath. He's, yeah. give, he's giving this professional advice, good professional advice, if not blunt. And then is like, mm, you also have to come by my place tonight and let me have your let me have my way with you. Yeah, it's it's a Chilling. lot. He he is a lot to take in. I swear to God. That being the case, we smash cut to that night. Henry or Jim Parsons is in the middle of a very sincere scarf strip tease dance routine that Rock seems a uncomfortable with and b confused by. What did you make of? that whole dance sequence, that seduction, because I think that's maybe what it was supposed to be. He was so all in to that dance. Like when Rock even tries to say anything, he's like, shut up, I'm dancing. He was so all in. I'm not even sure that it was a seduction. Maybe it started that way, but then he just got so engrossed into the music. You're like, oh my God. He was just acting his little heart out. It's one of those things where you feel like people who can't do teach. I wonder if it's like people who can't act and or dance become agents or something else. He clearly had like a performer's spirit that seemed to want to come leaping out of his chest. 
he can force people to be his audience, you know, and that's right. what it felt like he was doing, like, enjoy my dance. <laughs> so like, oh, my God, it let me know how far and how hidden his little world is, because he clearly would love to dance around like this all the time. And the fact that he has to wear a suit and be just like so straightforward and that he can't do this was just like, wow, you you are hiding so much more than even I realized. It's not just that you're gay. You are wanting to wear a kimono and and dance, you know, like mm-hmm. Madam Butterfly kind of dancing. I agree with you. I actually found this very humanizing for him. And then the fact that he doesn't make Rock sleep with him. And I know that should not be a compliment. He didn't make Rock have non-consensual sex with him. But the fact that he says, I like to make spoons and yeah. and he, he acknowledges that he's tired and lets him go to sleep. He just wants the companionship. Henry is not a good guy, but I don't think he is a black and white villain either. And I think scenes like this show you the, the world that he is juggling, because I think you're 100 percent right. The same way Ernie told Jack in the first episode, you don't think I wanted to be a movie star, but but Ernie's not a movie star. He's running right. a gigolo gas station. You know, Avis, who is taking Jack under her wing, is a washed up silent movie star. Hollywood seems to be littered by people who are not getting to be who they want to be, which Henry, I think this scene probably supports the idea that Henry is not getting to be who he wants to be. In order to want to be a part of Hollywood, it's very likely that, I mean, you have to have a love of performance and wanting to be a part of that world. And I think that that means you have a little performer inside of you as well. He just has, he has the ability to force people to watch. (laughs) Right. Which is, you know, not handling power in the most responsible way. You know, you know, Uncle Ben tells Peter, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Henry does not wield his webbing very responsibly. (laughs) But at the same time, I also like to make spoons. So I agreed with Henry there. I thought that was a a valid point. You know, you said it was humanizing. I think that it also took him to a more innocent place in a lot of ways. You know, the companionship line, I think, is, is, is very accurate. There is that part about loneliness that is brought up in this by Dick Samuels and the idea of just wanting someone there at the end of the night makes sense to me. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with that portion either. In fact, I think that that's even more relatable to most people than the actual sex on for anyone in all of this. Shit, even Jack. I mean, he's married for partially for the companionship of it all. Uh, yeah, in, in, one of, in one of several heartbreaking moments tonight, he has a definite breakdown where he reveals his marriage has serious issues. L- let's, uh, we're still not even at the party yet, and man, we are taking our time with this. But I think this is important because <laughs> I think we're, we're talking about good development of the characters. There was a lot in this one, to be fair. There was a lot of like expanding all their roles. Well, you know, also, this is the first real episode after, if you consider the first two episodes, the pilot, where it's introducing all of the business and all the characters, this is the first episode of the series to move the plot forward. And so it's going to give you a lot of information, I think. We cut to Jack and he's getting screen test lessons from Ellen. He's running lines with her. They're very close together, but not sexual. It's a very mentor-mentee relationship. And she listens to him go and then tells him to stop using his hand. She tells him that the shot is going to be in a close-up. She tells him that it's your eyes that are going to make you a star. And she has him reread the line, and I found it much more effective. I don't. What did you think of the screen test line reading one versus post 
education line reading too. I really thought that the most important part of all of that was about memorizing it so that you can just listen to the partner and not be so stuck on like trying to deal with what is my line. Like you need to have your stuff down pat and you need to have practiced this in a way to just be able to respond to people. And I thought that we heard that for both Rock and for Jack from different people. And I, I really thought that all of that whole concept of like how you need to practice your lines was important for for anybody who gives a hoot about how acting actually works. I thought all of that was like the thing that stuck in my mind. This takes us into our learn the lingo segment, because in this scene, Ellen talks to him about the world is moving towards naturalism acting. She says that it's starting in New York right then, and it's, it's going to be the thing. It, it had come over from Europe. The idea that classical acting, where you're very obvious with your hand gesticulations and really telegraphing where you're going with the scene and what you're thinking is falling by the wayside and that what she calls naturalism is taking over. Memorizing the line so that you can be in the moment emotionally when you actually go and deliver the scene. In our Learn the Lingo segment, I, I dived into this idea of naturalism and what it was about. It relates to a system actually that was started by a Russian named Konstantin Stanislavsky, who in like the 1910s created this new system of acting. It made its way to the United States. Some of his students took it through natural, just people picking it up and putting it down and picking it up again. It was adopted by a couple of actors in New York, one of which was uh, Lee Strasberg, who went on to become one of the most famous acting teachers probably ever. What she is describing as naturalism, as the idea of being in the moment, as, as, as feeling it and coming from a place of emotion versus what's maybe on the page, uh, turned into the idea of realism acting. Uh, naturalism is a much more heightened, extreme version of that. But what she's talking about really was known as realism acting. But we know that today and it has morphed into what we know today as method acting. The idea that the actor uses their own experiences, uses their own emotions that relate to what their character is going through to find an emotional connection is the paramount concern. Really embodying what your character is going through at that time, really coming at it from an emotion-based system is the idea of method acting. You hear about method acting a lot nowadays with people like Jared Leto or Daniel Day-Lewis is a really famous example of it where they get into character and they embody that in character the entire shoot. Even when the camera stops rolling, they don't break character. Jared Leto famously on the set of Suicide Squad would send all sorts of, he played the Joker in Suicide Squad, sent all sorts of malicious and kind of insane pranks to his fellow cast members and the, and the crew and the creatives because he was the Joker and he was fully embodying that even when the cameras weren't rolling, even in his hotel room that night. And Daniel Day-Lewis is famous for never breaking character during the duration of a shoot. Those are committed extreme forms of method acting. It doesn't require you to be that person the entire time. But Marlon Brando was a method actor, whereas classical acting is very focused on memorization, precise execution of the script. You don't deviate from it. What Shakespeare wrote is what you say, and you perform all the lines in a very precise, action-based kind of way. Method acting is the opposite of that. You may improvise, you may take liberties with the script because you become, you become the person you're playing. And so it allows you to free yourself from the words on the page and deliver the idea of the lines because you now inhabit that person. And I think that that's the type of stuff that Jack clearly needs to be doing to be able to be a more effective actor. He, he is a scene. 
I, I don't know that I saw the intensity coming from his eyes, but I thought his line reading was much more sincere after her brief lesson that she gave him. The idea of let it flow in your emotions, be in the moment of it more versus just reading lines. I think there were very good notes she gave. Neither Jack nor Rock seem to be very good actors, right? Mm -mm. We, we've seen Camille in action a couple times and she seems very convincing. We got to see Anna Mae Wong in her screen test from The Good Earth in the last week in the flashback last week. Very good actress, very compelling. You, you want to watch them on the screen. I, I find uh, Mira Sorvino's Gene Crandall a little a little hackied. So it's always, a, it's an interesting juxtaposition between the way she's delivering it as the lead, as the white lady lead of that film and... Camille's maid who has to be forced to play her lines for a laugh and not bring the heat like she wants to. It's interesting that you're saying that because Camille is such a good example of where she really instinctively wanted to play a more natural version of that maid in terms of, first of all, she advocated for herself and asserted herself with the staff there and said like, hey, listen, I think she would, I think that since she knew her so well, she would try to go get help. Again, playing into this naturalism type of idea, like, let mm -hmm. me play this more natural. What, what would this character actually say? Right. And he was saying, no, you have to read it exactly as it's in the script with nothing. Right. She still tries to do it more naturally with the smelling salts. And he's like, uh-uh, we're not having any of this. So interesting that she seems to understand this and is trying to actually implement it and is actually being completely shut down. Mia Servino's character, Jean Crandall, goes to bat for her at the end of the scene where she says her line reading is better and the director doesn't want to hear it. Now, curious if the director doesn't want to hear it because she's a woman, because mm -hmm. she's a black woman, or just because he believes in classical acting. And so someone wrote the script, the person wasn't you, so read the fucking lines the way they're written. So who knows what his motivation is? I suspect it probably has more to do with the femaleness of it all, if not the color of the skin of the female. But the way he shuts down Mira, uh, Mira's character, also Gene Crandall, also makes me think that it's more you're a silly female and read the words the way they're written for you. Camille, since we're already talking about her, she has a no good, very terrible, bad day on set. So she comes home kind of with a fire in her belly. She suggests to Ray that she be allowed to screen test for Peg. Now, Ray says that's not going to work. It's a, you know, a white woman that we're talking about and it's we're telling that woman's story we can't take really liberties with that which is a question for modern times whether or not you can change that kind of thing camille you know goes on to kind of fuck him and suggest changes as she's doing so and gets him to be on board with changing it to meg and, and kind of changing vital parts of the script and the story which will allow her the ability to test for the role what did you think of Camille's moves here? Was this underhanded using her sexuality this way to get her wants, to get her wishes, or, you know, do what you got to do to make your dreams come true? Oh, gosh. I don't know if I would use the word underhanded. That seems too strong. They're in a relationship. I doubt this is the first time she's ever had a conversation with him while they're actually having sex. And so it seemed very like this is the way we do things. They just continued to talk. Mm. I don't actually have an issue with it, personally. He was fully in, in the sex. And she was continuing to talk. I mean, typically you try to talk first and then if you can't get what you're what you're wanting out of that situation, it wouldn't be that crazy to to try it when you have them a little bit more compromised. Interesting. Interesting. I, she did not talk to him first about. Well, I guess she did. She she suggested it and he shot her down. And mm -hmm. so then she took the humping. <laughs> and her Retroactively, he says to her in this moment, 
I think that really is a good idea and not just because, you know, we were, you know, fucking. But in the moment, he's responding to her affirmatively, but he's saying it in like a, that's so good. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, that's so he was being led by his penis in this scene. Oh, I don't think anyone's confused by that. I think that it's that that's where her power is. And I think that if we if we're going to applaud all the men for for doing what they have to do to get what they want, then I applaud Camille. I'm not sure I have a problem with it. I thought it was an interesting use of her power and one that you actually don't see a lot because I think women get accused of doing this kind of thing all the time and, and, and in a negative way. But I don't think we actually ever really see it. So it was interesting to see it play out. And I'm not sure I had a problem with it either because she tried the front door. I don't know that I want to make a backdoor analogy here. I don't think we should. <laughs> but she 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 tried talking to him. She tried on set. She tried making herself known and stand out several different ways. This was a very, this is what I'm going to do to get my way. And it worked for her. So I don't think I have a problem with it either. You can see where people would have a problem with it, though. Both men, because... You know, there are men out there who would be like, look at that devil woman using her feminine wiles. That's a thing that exists definitely in the 1940s and still exists in 2020. But I think there's also a brand of feminist who would be offended by her doing this too. The the idea of you hurt the cause when you resort to your sexuality in order to win your argument. No. Isn't that a brand of feminism that would reject that route that she's taking here? Maybe so, but I would push back against that and say, I can own my sexuality just as much as I can own my wit or my intelligence. So by you telling me that my sexuality, using that makes me less than, but using my intelligence makes me better, I would say, who are you to tell me what is of more value to me and what I'm allowed to use? It's my body and it's my choices. So for that, I mean, I push back on feminists and say, my sexuality can be equal parts of who I am, and I can use whichever method I want to to convince someone, and it's you being more judgy on me to say, I can't use that, but I can use that. Like, mind your business. You know, I can use whatever I want to do it. He can push her off and say, if we're going to have this conversation and my dick's not a part of this, okay, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But there's plenty of people who make all kinds of deals in, the, in that exact situation. A hundred percent. I mean, I agree with you. And I think that the rules reversed. If it was a guy doing it to a, a female or to another guy in the same way, I don't think anyone would bat their eyes either. And nor should they. It's, if it's a tool available to you and you have a, a charm or a sexuality or a charisma that sways people, then that is a tool you have in your arsenal and you should go forth and use it. That's how I look at it. I think I think there's probably a responsibility to make sure you're wielding it correctly because so it doesn't blow back on you, which I think Camille seems very in control of. I think she again, she just didn't jump into this. She, you know, wasn't like it was an outburst. I think it was a very I know what I'm doing here. But I think barring that, I, I don't I don't have a problem with what she's doing either. The only thing that could be like partially you know, questionable is that they are in a loving, committed relationship. And it is hard to believe that she couldn't have found different times to talk to him about it. I know she tried once, but that doesn't mean that that's the only time to talk about it. So I would say that she's running the risk of hurting his feelings or running the risk of him feeling taken advantage of. And that's always a risk assessment you would have to take if you're going to go that direction. Manipulating people is one thing. Manipulating the person you love and you're partnered with in a relationship is another thing. And you have to, mm -hmm. whatever you call it and whatever defense is for it, it's a manipulation. I mean, she's manipulating him here. But also, you know, in her, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to her defense on this one and say, from her point of view, she had a fuck all day. This was her fourth attempt to get her answer. Right. And she had had enough. 
girlfriend had had enough and she wanted the answer she wanted. And so she did what she had to do in order to make that happen. What cards did she have left to play? She even had the white actress giving her coming to her defense and it still didn't work. Being the same as the guys, you know, what what do you have to do to actually move forward in your dream? I wanted to back up a second because I had found this quote and I forgot to read it before in the conversation about naturalism versus classical acting and the idea of method acting. Uh, Tennessee Williams, and I only bring it up because the quote is from Tennessee Williams, who wrote uh, a streetcar named Desire, which gets name dropped in this in this episode tonight. He talked uh, talking about Lee Strasberg, who was one of the kind of three founders of the method of the modern method acting in America. He he said about their actors, they act from the inside out. They communicate emotions they really feel. They give you a sense of life. I I liked that quote, and it seemed to really embody what you were talking about, what Ellen is trying to talk about, what all of these people are talking about is that you need to put yourself into it. You, you, need, to, you need to make your audience emotionally invested in what you're telling them. And, uh, and, and I think that's what Ellen was trying to get Jack to do earlier. We finally get to meet Ace Amberg, played by Rob Reiner, Avis's husband. Were you surprised by this to find out that Claire was their daughter? I thought it was a huge twist that I did not see coming. I couldn't think of any breadcrumbs that would have been dropped. I don't think we had seen Avis and Claire in the same place together. This is the first time we're seeing Ace because he was off trying to get Gene Tierney to come back to Hollywood. I thought it was interesting, and I'm curious what you thought. Did you think it was interesting that neither of her parents want her to be an actress? Oh, no. I think that that's super common. People who are in the business trying to keep their kids out of the business, I think that that's probably way more common than those that allow their kids to be in it. Most of the time when you see someone who has been allowed, it's only been when they're older that they're allowed to, certainly not when they're little. But I thought that the way they went about it was completely different than I would have thought. I think it's common to say, I want to protect you from the spotlight. I want to protect you from the judgment and the criticism until you're old enough to handle it. But the part of this of like, I'm just going to criticize you and tell you you're not good enough. Right. That's a completely different thing. Uh, just like Henry, you know, being just blunt as fuck here. You're not good enough to be an actress here. Almost as if Ace was thinking if she was good enough, he wouldn't have a problem with it. I was curious why Avis would be against it, given how she was kind of trumpeted out of the business against her wishes is it because she's trying to protect her daughter from the harshness of the business? Or is there maybe a, a tinge of jealousy? Not so much that it's her daughter, but it's a, a, this beautiful young woman who may make it in Hollywood, whereas she was thrown out of the business at the prime of her life. I think that Claire certainly submits and puts it into our brains that jealousy could be a part of it. I didn't really get that from Avis as much as I got that she's an impetuous kid who she's just been dealing with like, I want, I want, I want, like spoiled crap that she's just like, shut up already. Yeah. I mean, the way that they're kind of talking over her, like she's talking to them, but really the parents only talk to one another. And they're like, you know what? That's a good idea. Why don't you put that up in lights? And then she can be embarrassed. Yeah. Okay, fine. Go ahead. Go ahead and do that. They're really just talking to each other and ignoring her completely. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't smell the jealousy part of it all. I get it. I understand it. But I really think that it comes down to at the end of the day, most people who are in the industry don't want their kiddos in it, especially for Ace. I mean, God, the kid seems like a pain in the ass. Like the last thing I would want is to her to be acting like a spoiled brat on set or come, people coming to me complaining that my kid isn't acting right or doing something right. She didn't come off serious enough for it all. She came off kind of just like, I deserve it. Just give it to me. Kind of snottiness, you know, like I jumped through your hoop. So give it to me. That's interesting. 
I think that's how we had seen her so far, but in the same way that the odd scarf dance kind of humanized Henry, I found this scene to soften my feeling about Claire, trying to think of what life must be like for her, what growing up must be like for her, that this is the thing she wants to do. She's being told not only that she can't do it, she's being told that she's shitty at it, that if she goes for it, she is going to suffer public humiliation for it. And additionally, how about you just get married? <laughs> right. That is the extra like like tweak of like, hey, you know what? How about you don't follow your dreams and in fact, just marry this guy? And in fact, the only reason I've let you be on the lot and take the acting classes is so that you may have run into a guy to marry. Mm-hmm. You know, not yeah. to go get married, but I've put you, I've allowed you to go this far, not because I had any intention of actually letting you do this as your profession, but just because I wanted to kind of hang you out there as sex bait. So, so you could be someone else's problem instead of, you know, being on my dime. Really yeah. harsh. And, and anytime you get that kind of reveal about a backstory, I think it has to make you stop and think about what your preconceived notion is on the person. The same way Rock's story kind of humanized him and explained him today the way, same way the scarf dance maybe humanized Henry a little bit. I, I think we got a, a glimpse into Claire's backstory into her private life that I think we have to be aware of when we're talking about her because you could see where she would almost feel entitled or that she was do something because of the shit she has to put up with. I think for her too, the, the way that having the story play out the way they did, it reminded me also, like you were saying about the way that Henry talks to Rock in front of everybody, the way that the doctor talks so blunt to Jack, there was a feeling of like, no one is going to act sensitive around your feelings, like in, in including if it's going to happen in front of other people, like they were willing to break her down and talk about her right in front of her and like bust, bust out all kinds of things that are super nasty. And most of us would never say in front of our kid, much less even behind the scenes, we would say it in a, in a more kind way. This shit is not happening. Like they're just going to be blunt. This is the way it is. Even the way that Ace talks to Avis, for God's sake. He's like, I run the studios. I run the world. You run the house. The end. Shut up. But speaking of Ace, were you at all surprised that our first glimpse of this power mogul, this this Harvey Weinstein proto gross guy is getting a blowjob under his desk in his house. That, 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 that's our first scene of him. Did that surprise you at all? Did not surprise me and was an extra awesome layer that he actually had the entire family waiting to eat until he came out there. <laughs> so they were all sitting there waiting for him to finish. How awesome is that? I mean, he's taking Uncle Henry's advice. He's getting his pickle tickled. Mm-hmm. You'd think he'd be in a better mood at dinner. Yeah, we think. You'd, but that fucking annoying kid and that wife. Hey. You know, <laughs> oh very like Ralph Cramden, but like the worst possible version of Ralph Cramden ever. And like know? Archie Bunker, which is funny to be Rob Reiner. <laughs> that is funny. Who's the meathead now? Right. Um, That's how I felt when I was looking at him. I was like, oh, man, Archie would be so proud of you. <laughs> Your rude words. We have come to the Sunday soiree of George Cooker. Man, there is a lot going on here. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the dinner and the party attendants, the famous people we see? Where do you want to where do you want to jump? Yeah. In? Yeah. Let's talk about the. So there was like a cocktail side of the party and then there was like the pool party after dinner party. For me, the first thing I have here is my indignity that fucking Rock would not know who Vivian Lee was, that she was Scarlett O'Hara. Now, I agree with you. Henry does not speak kindly to Rock. I don't know that he speaks kindly to anyone. And I think his fucking hayseed comment was out of line and derogatory and demeaning. 
Super harsh. Super harsh. But this is my client. I am taking him. I, I I am expending some of my street credibility by taking my client here. So I am putting myself, I'm vouching for this fucking hayseed. And he doesn't know who she is. Probably. Uh, 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 oh my gosh! I, I yeah. I, I mean, the indict. I I have so many exclamation points and underscores. My indignity. okay, but hold on. Have you ever been in a situation where you've seen someone and you recognize them as an actor, and then you see them in an interview and you say, "I didn't know they were Australian," or "I didn't know they had an Irish accent." Have you ever been in that position? Oh yeah. So if you were sitting there and the person across from you is speaking with an English accent and you totally are like, okay, I, I believe I know who this is because you and I have had the situation where someone on screen looks very different than when they're standing in front of you. And you, sometimes with hair and makeup, you're like, I didn't even know you were the same person. And then they speak with a completely different accent. I'm giving him no pass. Okay. Because I'm going back to the Naomi Campbell. You're a disrespect to the industry. If you don't fucking know your history, the profession that you have chosen, gotta know your history. That goes without saying, right? You've been in a situation where you're like, is this the person I think it is or isn't it? Well, here's the thing. Because there's something a little different that you weren't expecting. A hundred percent. And I am horrible at faces. I lived in New York for the majority of my life. I lived in New York. I worked in New York City. I am sure I have run into, cross paths with, walk next to famous people. And I have never, ever seen a famous person in New York because I am horrible at faces. Horrible. When a British actress is doing a Southern Belle accent, and that's the only touchstone I may know about her, totally get you. But you know the name, though. You have to know the name. The same way, if you're going to be in Hollywood, you have to know who Ellen Kincaid is and who Dick Samuels is. You're You're not a fucking hayseed back on the farm, back at home. You have stepped into the lion's den of Hollywood. You got to know who these people are, at least by name, if not okay. by if by night, if not by sight. So let me ask you this: if if we were back in this time, how would you gain that information? How how would you get it? Especially given that we know Rock's background now, we know he didn't come from a place where he probably had any pocket change to ever get a chance to go to the movies. He came in here very honestly being an innocent person, not really knowing things. Where do you think people are supposed to get that info when you and I have the luxury of the internet and just plugging any TV show on and when looking at the credits and pausing it and all that kind of stuff? Is it really that unrealistic that you would be a little bit green when you're when you're brand new like this? Was it Henry's responsibility to say, these are the following people who will likely be at the dinner party and here's what you need to know about them? Because as an agent, I would certainly do that shit. I would do that as a, a partner in a couple when we're going around and say, hey, remember that Sally, that's Joe's wife. And remember, she just had that surgery. So don't mention that thing. Like, I totally do that all the time. Did Henry have any responsibility rather than wigging out on him? Maybe. But at the same time, I, I think maybe for someone like Tallulah Bankhead, who even at this time was less well known than Vivian Lee, Gone with the Wind was only five or six years old and was one of the largest movies ever. Probably after Wizard of Oz was one of the largest movies ever. She had won the, you know, the Oscar award that year for it. She probably was one of the most well-known actresses at that point. Maybe not in the, maybe fast forward 10 years even, and, and the name doesn't click, but five, six years after Gone with the Wind, the lead of Gone with the Wind, if you don't know her, who do you know? I don't know. So whose responsibility, though, is it? So my point was that, yes, Henry should have probably prepped him. 
about like the idea of here's who's going to be at dinner tonight. And these are things you should know. You should know something that Noel Coward wrote. You should know something Tallulah Bankhead was in. You know Vivian Lee, right? She was Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Yes, he should have said that. But I think Vivian Lee, being who she is, he must have just assumed, how could you not know? Even if you don't know the face or the voice, how could you not know the name? If you don't know her, who do you know? I'll go with even one better, though. If we go with the whole act like you've been here before, how's about you just don't bluntly ask? Are you Vivian Lee from Gone with the Wind? That part you could skip. If you don't know who she is, just teach him to zip it. Just teach him to be the strong, silent type. And that could have avoided the whole situation, too. That's part of the thing about how do you learn who people are and what you're doing? Maybe just be quiet. And when you're in those situations, pick it up, pick up on some context clues and then go for it. He's so childlike. The way that a child would look over and be like, you have a big nose. Like, you don't say that. Just don't say it. Think it. Don't say it. Uh, Aaron Burr gives Alexander Hamilton very good advice in uh, the early part of Hamilton, the Broadway musical. He tells Alex to talk less and smile more. That is good advice that we all could use from time to time. That's how you figure out what's going on. That's how you learn who the players are. You listen how they speak to each other. And then you fake it until you make it if you don't otherwise know. Absolutely. It's the best way to act like you've been there before is to act like you don't need to be so eager about looking for information. You should already know the information, right? Play it cool. There's a lot of stuff going on at this table. So we also have Dick Samuels is here. And uh, Dick is telling Ray to make sure he gets out of this party by dessert, that Ray doesn't want to be too late at these parties. He gets why he has to be here. It's business. But at the same time, he advises him strongly to get out while he can. Ellen uh, is there with Jack telling him to go talk up Henry, which I thought was interesting advice because she had said, get yourself someone like Henry. I don't think she had said, go get yourself Henry. What, what did you think of both of these? I think that Ray is supposed to retain his integrity in this entire thing. And so I understand why Dick would say, hey, you know what? You need to peel off just like Avis and Ellen peel off. It's like when things get a little bit too much, we don't need your reputation sullied. And it's not that Ellen and Avis would not partake in some real body business. It's that everyone else doesn't need to be privy to that. Same with Raymond. Like, go home. Go do whatever you're going to do with whomever you're going to do it. But you don't need to do that in front of everybody here. This is a different scene. So I was okay with that. The pushing Jack towards Henry felt an awful lot like sending a lamb to slaughter. Like, I'm not so sure why Ellen is so cool with signing off on Henry antics, really. Because Ellen is a pragmatist in the business. You know, even someone her who's looking out for Jack, you can see where maybe she forgets the lamb to the slaughter aspect of it. She's presumably known Henry for a long time at this point. But more importantly, she knows that Henry is the guy who gets you the screen test. Henry is the guy who gets you the access. There is no internet. There's no TMZ. There's word of mouth for sure. But it's possible, and I would say maybe even likely, that the extent of Henry's sexual antics and the way he treats his clients behind closed doors may not be well known at this point. We have the benefit of 2020 hindsight and some 80 years to know what some of these real characters were like or a version of them that may have existed back then. In the moment, in the industry, when there is no instant 24-hour news cycle, maybe maybe the, the, the suck my dick if you want me to represent you isn't so well known. Because maybe, who's telling? 
Rock is not going around and be like, yeah, I has, you know, I had to let my agent, you know, suck my dick so he would represent me. There's probably a good part of this where it's just maybe even rumor, if that. I mean, I, I kind of got the impression that everybody knew that was there uh, about what everybody else does. And they just sort of just are cool with it. But I will go with you. I'll give the benefit of the doubt that maybe Dick Samuels knows what Henry's all about, but maybe possibly Ellen doesn't. I think it's more than just the the homosexual aspect of it. I, I think Avis and Ellen bounce from the party because Avis is, is loaded, but also because they know that at a certain point when the USC football players show up, they're not there for them. You know, the two Lula Bankheads can dip in that well, who, uh, you know, known to you know, be bisexual in the, in the lingo of the time. Dessert represents a changing of the guard and the tone of the party. Well, and like I said, it's not that those ladies don't. It's just that I think it's the reputation part. It's not something you do with everyone else. You know, I mean, Avis mm. was very happy to be, you know, pulling on Ernie and saying like, see you later, like in front of other people. But it's just like, they're not going to do that in front of everybody. I think it's interesting that Ellen sent Jack off to Henry because not that his treatment of people may be well known, but only because he is so powerful. It, it seems punching well above Jack's weight talent wise, you know, no representation and not knowing your ass from your elbow, Jack to Henry, the most powerful talent agent, talent agent in the business, seems like a very large leap. I wonder if Ellen uses that type of thing as a kind of like a weeding out process. Like if I do send you to the biggest baddie in, in either you don't have the guts to go talk to him or you get smashed like Jack does, it's kind of a weeding out process. Can you handle Henry? Could be, though. I get the impression that Ellen, either of her own accord or because Avis whispered in her ear, seems firmly on Jack's side. She's already stuck her neck out for him. So her reputation's already on the line. Maybe Henry helps give some breathing room because Henry makes shit happen again, kind of like he's doing for Rock. Talent or no talent, Henry will get you in front of the director for a screen test. So maybe that's what she's thinking. Maybe maybe Henry is the belt to her suspenders. Okay. Uh, so the party does break up and we do move into the USC football players part of the evening. And this is when a lot of uh, revelations start coming out and a lot of people start running into each other. Uh, and actually, Rock meets Ray uh, for the first time and starts right away in the same way Jack kind of accosted Dick Samuels at lunch. Rock starts kind of selling himself to Ray. Party foul? Is this a business event where that's that's okay to talk about? Or you shouldn't talk business here. Clearly, we no one should be doing business here. That's not what this party is about. I think it's okay because there is a level of networking that is happening. However, there's network techniques that is not being so brazen as to speak directly about what you want. And that's the part that Rock isn't at yet. He and Jack do the same types of things. They just say it. They just say, like, I want a screen test. Instead of, why not ingratiate yourself to this person, have them like you as a person. And then as they, as they're like, Hey, I remember you from that party. You're still more likely to get that screen test rather than, you know, just go full, full throttle every time. So blunt. What can you give me? What can you do for me? Like, don't be that blunt. Right. Which I think again is, is the naivete and inexperience that Jack and Rock are both exhibiting all episode. They're being too in your face about their needs and not out of a bold, audacious way like Henry would do it. You know, Henry could go up to someone and be like, give my guy a fucking screen test. Ah! <laughs> and that's part of like Henry's thing and it would work. But those people probably already have an established relationship though too, right? You know, like for the two young guys, Rock and Jack, these are the first time they're actually 
encountering these people, they should treat it more like a meet and greet and less like a like a job interview. Quit acting like that. Start just talking. I do have to say that I was out in LA last winter and I was talking with someone who lives out there and has lived out there her whole life. She was introducing me to a bunch of her friends. And the first thing her friends would say is, what do you do? That's the very first question before even your name. She said, out here, especially if you're young, the first thing someone wants to do is figure out what connection you have and how they can use you. And I was like laughing because I didn't have anything to offer these people. But the way they wanted to vet me, like real quick, just get to that. What can I get out of you? We still talked and we still were like friendly and stuff. But it was like once they realized like, oh, I'm not a director. I'm not a studio. I'm nothing. I'm nothing to you. I'm not going to be able to get you anything. It was like, oh, OK, I get it. I, I understand our relationship now. In my uh, other professional life as, as a lawyer, there are several events throughout the year where clients and lawyers, you know, in, mix and intermingle industry events. It is always interesting to see a lawyer come up to you. You know, the, the name tags are always, it's always poorly lit rooms. It's always a cocktail hour or something like that. It's it, the lights are turned down low. The name tags are in an embarrassing position where you have to stare at someone's tit to read what it says in a font too small. So it's a lot of, oh, who are you and what do you do? And there is always there's always a vetting process of are you a client? Are you a business person who I may woo or are you a lawyer at another firm and you are my competition here? It's like a little quick mating dance that happens within seconds. I like that you described it like a dance because that's what I think that they should be doing at this party. Do more of a dance. Be more of a player in this. You you actually try to go back and forth a little bit to try to feel each other out as opposed to just being like, Hi, what can you do for me? <laughs> like, don't do that. Sure. I mean, the way in, if Rock had a, if had Rock had a brain in his head, would have been something like, oh, you're Ray Ainsley. You're directing Peg. He's like, yeah, I am. And he's like, I know Archie, the screenwriter. And that's your in. Because then all of a sudden, you're, you have credibility with Ray. It, that just seems like a much more natural in than just bringing a sledgehammer to it. Be more with a scalpel. Or even, I mean, show some actual interest in the person rather than just what they can give you. I mean, say, what do you think of Peg's story? Blah, blah, blah. I was drawn to it for this. Like, I mean, just talk, be a person. And through that conversation, you will be appealing to them and you can move forward. But it's like, just don't be so blunt. Yeah, you know, but it's interesting. I think that's an interesting character feature of Rock that I think he's actually very shy. I don't think he is probably naturally gregarious that way. He strikes me as someone who doesn't know how to make small talk, doesn't know how to schmooze. I don't think that's a skill he probably has. It makes you almost wonder how he had the knowledge to go to Golden Tip gas station in the first place. Where did he get that information from? I don't know. It, it, it's a mystery. Some of this stuff is a real mystery. The ability and gumption to get that and courage to go do that, to get his needs serviced, but doesn't know how to make basic small talk at a function like this. It's See, I always found it interesting that he, he that he did have the guts to go to the gas station in the middle of the day, pick up a, a black guy, let him hop in his car. Like that whole thing doesn't mesh with the rock that we've actually gotten to know how innocent and insecure and worried and unsure of himself he is. That whole thing, when it was happening, I was like, this guy just doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would do this. He would be too nervous, too unsure of how to handle this. I don't know. It, that, that's a, an interesting mesh of maybe like sexual needs, you know, surpasses your insecurity. Yeah, it definitely doesn't mesh with who he is. It seems a different kind of rock or Roy, rock and roll, rock and Roy. You know, some time has passed since the pilot episode. 
I don't know that it's been months, but it's been at least probably a couple weeks has passed, and he's been with Archie most of that time. So maybe his inability to speak and his inability to go out there has been affected by his feelings from Archie on one hand, and also his recent encounter. Last time he put himself out there, he ended up getting his dick sucked by his new his new agent. So maybe he's also shell shocked. Maybe he currently just doesn't know how to put himself out there in a way. Does that make sense? So it is a very, very good question about how much time has passed because in the pilot, we find out that Henrietta is pregnant. And in this episode, she says that she is awake because the twins are like kicking at each other. You can't feel that until 16 to 25 weeks of your pregnancy, which would be you know, quite a bit into it. But yet the woman, the actress shows no signs of showing at all. She's as thin as she was from the beginning and she's having twins. And at the point that she's like four or five months in. I feel like they, I feel, I feel like she had a little bit of a bump when she was sitting down. I can't remember when she stands up and takes him and leads I him to the bedroom. I really stared at it because I had twins. Like you would be very apparently pregnant at the point of being able to feel kicking enough to wake you up and keep you awake. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, wait a minute, how much time has passed? It was a weird little mix there of like, I'm not, I have no idea. It made me wonder. It's got to be a couple months. A couple months seems right to me. Yes. But but all the more reason for him to, to make, to support Rock becoming gun shy because he, from his point of view anyway, is in this relationship with Archie, even though he hasn't actually had that conversation yet with him. He also had this recent shell shocking interaction with Henry and he's still on his back for from that. I mean, every time he talks to Henry, I feel like he gets like verbally whipped in the face a couple more times and he's just not ready for it. So I think Rock is just unsteady, but still also is in this position where he has to go advocate for himself. He understands why he's here. He's uh, got a little PTSD from Hollywood also at this point, which which maybe so is too. which maybe is making him unable to talk. <laughs> <laughs> right from this, Dick Samuels comes over and again now very forcefully chases Ray out of the party. For me anyway, and I think you and I disagree on this, and I want you I want your take first, and then I want to give my take. <laughs> Why is Dick so concerned with getting Ray out of here? So I took it as Dick had planned to leave as well and had changed his mind when the USC football team came in. But he was at the door. Like he was the one holding the door and then watched them all walk by. The one man looks at him for a long time and then he's tempted and changes his mind to stay. I don't think he intended to do anything that night. My feel was that he was instructing Ray to head on out because he is an up and coming director who he wants him to be, I don't know, a little bit unsullied at this point is my best word to say. I I think he just wants him to retain a little bit of having some integrity and dignity about this situation. And like, maybe you don't, maybe you're more of an Avis and an Ellen. Like if you want to be a higher up, maybe you just need to head on out, you know, because he would have headed out too. So that felt like the echelon that was all leaving was kind of the higher ups. And if you want to be one of us, you need to head on out. This is a different group of people who are playing here. So that's how I kind of felt about it. But I know you felt differently. Well, I agree with you that part of it is that he wants to save Ray from what is coming next at this party because he knows. And Dick is obviously in torment. I'm not so convinced that he was fully going to leave before the USC guys came. I think if that was the plan, I think he would have made sure he knows what time they are showing up. This is not his first George Cooker party. I think he was checking out the goods to see if anything caught his eye and if he caught anyone else's eye. That's fair. Can I ask you this? Do you know, like right before he tells 
Raymond to leave, how he asks him, he says, so you met George at the farmer's market? And Raymond goes, do other things happen at the farmer's market that I'm not aware of? When he says that to me, and then Dick says, you know what? You should head out right after dinner. To me, that was like a little test. Like, are you are you gay and are you part of this whole crew? Right. And when he's like, yeah, I was at the farmer's market. But like, what the fuck happens at the farmer's market? I was just getting my food, you know, like kind right. of real innocent. It was like, this is not your game, son. You need to head out. For sure. I think that plays very much into my other reason for why he acts this way, where, where it goes from advice at dinner to forcefully telling him to leave is, I, I think there's a, a bit of a shame factor here. Dick clearly has his his desires, but he is tormented about them. He is clearly not comfortable about them. And no, at no part of this evening does he look comfortable with what he is doing. The true self, his true self or his comfortability with the life that he has concocted and presented, he is a superior to Ray. And he has made very clear that for Dick, the way Hollywood runs is this old school Hollywood, some would say the Hollywood that we currently still have in the real world, that Ace Amberg would not be okay with one of his underlings being out and out gay. In the same way that Billy Haynes was forced to retire from act versus denying his homosexuality. And so he doesn't want to be in a position of an underling, Ray, knowing he is gay or a closeted homosexual that upsets the power balance that Dick has to maintain over Ray as his boss at the studio. I like that very much because the idea of like having dirt on somebody or anything like that absolutely feels like it would be a whole issue always. And so I agree with you that it would upset the balance of like information. And you don't get to be Dick Samuels as powerful as we have been shown that he is without knowing all of those things. Dick knows where everyone's moves are on every chessboard playing here. He, that's his business. That's how he got to be the number two guy at Ace Studios. Very much what you're saying is what plays in so hardcore at the cottage with him and Rock. The fact that Dick knows what everyone's role is and what they're doing. The fact that he ends up in the cottage with Rock and he knows that Henry is like pulling strings and he's like so fucking pissed about that. You're, you're so dead on in that he has his eye on everybody and this is all very strategic and he's like kicking himself for having like gone and done anything. Henry was like, how about you go do this? Again, the, these invisible hands that move Hollywood. He he is aware that the power Henry wields. Again, this is not Henry's party. This is George's party. And George is a director. And, and so that's a safe space for him. Henry being there. And you get the impression Henry maybe wouldn't have been there if not for taking Rock to show him around and show mm -hmm. him off and pimp him off and pimp him around and set him up with Dick Samuels. He had a plan. Henry is the wrench in Dick's works. Don't you think that the amount of times that they showed us that Henry was like creeping behind a door was like unsettling, like how he was watching Jack watch. He was watching Archie and Rock have a conversation. He's like every, he's just like fucking everywhere. Like he's just like this like, ugh. This weasel just like peeping up everywhere. He's the spider from Game of Thrones. Yes. Right? It's, and the same kind of power dynamic. It, it's these invisible hands that have the power. And hand, again, the same way Dick doesn't get to be where he is without knowing all of the moves on the chessboard. Henry also knows those same positions. He knows where everyone is, where all the bodies are buried because it's their business. You can't make promises to clients like I can get you that screen test and be able to deliver on that without knowing. You can only know you can deliver on those promises because you know all of the information. You Absolutely. Know, inf information is 100% the power uh, that, that moves 
all of these guys at this echelon. I, I, there was a there was a part here where Ray finally leaving runs into Archie, who's coming in with the USC guys, and Archie. I'm here with the gas station crew. Ray just kind of rolls with it, doesn't judge him, just rolls with it. And, you know, he tells him you got to do what you got to do to follow your dreams. And I love that as part of the thesis statement of the show and one of the themes, I think, for this episode. Definitely a very, like, tinkling, 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 though, moment, because that's not how normally it goes. That guy, like, Ray would absolutely judge Archie for that situation. Right. Let's accept that for the fantasy that it is. We're definitely getting into the Oz moments. I mean, I, I think that's becoming a segment that we can even call it here. The the Wizard of Oz moment, the, the tinkling noise. The ease with which all water rolls off of Ray's back mm-hmm. as he is defending and crusading for the rights of man. It strains credulity because no one in Hollywood is like this. And I love the fantasy of it. And I love the idea of, you know, understanding you got to do what you got to do to follow your dreams. But I want to I want to hold on to that because I feel like Dick Samuels later on when he's having his breakdown with Rock seems to put a limit on how much do you got to do to follow your dreams. I, I feel like Dick ends up giving a limit to that statement. But if you keep doing what you got to do to follow your dreams, you wind up not knowing who you are at all. Yeah. You can't sell your soul to the devil. Once you get the success, it won't mean anything. I mean, Jack spoke to that on the tennis court. He's like, but, you know, I might be successful, but I'll know why I got there. And it it won't be because I did a great job on the screen. And that takes away all of the wow for me, you know, and that's fair. That's a fair warning to people is like, you know, if you get too dirty on the way up, you're not going to be proud of yourself when you're standing on the top. This is the Teddy Dolores thing from Westworld, right? Isn't this the conversation? If you have to change yourself to be like your enemies, does it even matter if you get what you want in the end because you're you're no longer recognizable as who you actually are? Yes. Henry catches Jack spying on Tallulah. Wait, hold up. That was Tallulah? That wasn't Claire? That was Tallulah. So when Claire comes kind of like stomping out of the house and she's also wearing a yellow dress and she comes and she comes out kind of like in a rush kind of way later on. What was that about? Because she goes kind of stomping off and that's when she kind of heads towards the tennis courts and is kind of like standing over there and happens to, you know, spy over there. But like what I just, I don't know why. I just kind of assumed that she was in there doing something too. Ernie has to go talk to Vivian because she's having her bipolar incident and Mm -hmm. he would normally be with Tallulah. So he tells Jack, you're on the fucking clock, go keep an eye on Tallulah. And that's why, that's why he's spying on Tallulah is, her, her reputation in Hollywood is that she was very promiscuous. And Henry, like you said, the spider of Hollywood is peeping on Jack. He engages Jack in this conversation about the interior designer, Billy Haynes, and he tells him the story of how Billy was a gay actor who refused to denounce his homosexuality and was forced out of the business for doing so and became an interior designer. He, in fact, did really design George Cooper's house so the point of the story was that it's it's rare huh, that you get to see a, a queer stand up for himself and win. I feel like Henry is constantly feeling like he has to win. And I think that goes a long way in explaining why he acts the way he acts. He has such a he has such a chip on his shoulder from the secrets Hollywood makes him keep about himself. So he has this overriding drive to win. But moving on from there, they go to the tennis courts. Basically, he wants to know if he can suck his dick. Did you think Jack was going to break here or did you think Jack was going to stand up for himself? He's been awfully consistent about the fact that he is just not in for guy on guy action. And he has maintained that. I wasn't exactly surprised. I felt more surprised at the fact that Claire was peeping on the whole situation. And I wondered 
how that was going to get twisted. I was glad that it didn't seem as three's company that she left the second he took his pants down because then that's, that's a total one of those times when she goes, says that he did suck his dick and he was willing to do anything. And that's why he got the part, but she stayed for the whole thing up to the yelling that, you know, you're done in Hollywood and Jack leaving before anything happened. So that made me wonder if she was actually going to stand up for Jack in some way later or stand up to Henry. I think Claire being there peeping on that. And now we know she is the daughter of the studio head that potentially negates Henry's threat that Jack is done for this role and, and for and, and in Hollywood, which keeps the tension alive between Jack and Rock for the role of boyfriend in Peg, which seems to be the big coveted thing that is going to occupy at least the next several episodes, if not the, you know, all seven episodes, the casting of this movie. Her being there ends up being extremely important because for whatever reason, she has thrown in with Jack. They haven't shown us other men besides Rock and Jack. Jack didn't take a class with a bunch of other men the way that the women all took a class together. Like, we don't even know. Like, who who else are we, you know, up against? As far as we know, it's just these two going up for the role. But I mean, presumably there has to be someone else. But your reading was right that Claire is going to be the thing that keeps Henry from exacting this revenge against Jack. I wrote in here, was this honorable or stupid? I do kind of admire him that he does have these standards that he won't break. If you were going to be this person that Jack is, my gut is you would never have gotten to the tennis court. He didn't pick you up and, and force you to go to the tennis court. You know what I mean? Like you could have just said, let's just talk by the pool or let's just do whatever. You could continue to divert the, you know, the, the, the conversation. You could bring someone else over in the conversation. Women do this all the time, Mike. If you go to a place where you are going to be completely secluded, you know the risk factor there. Like Jack should have been more intelligent about what is going on here. So don't go to a secluded place, you know, come back and stick with the party. That's what we all do. However, this does give a really interesting insight into Jack and the whole not loving Henrietta and the whole reason why he married her in the first place and why he's out there doing these antics doesn't actually seem to be about furthering his career as much as it seems to be about not caring about cheating because he doesn't love his wife. Totally heartbreaking, right? I, I, I felt so bad for him the way he had this epiphany because it really did just come rushing out. I mean, Henry, Henry kind of in his Henry way browbeats him into confessing why he's doing what he's doing. It seemed like it hit him at the same time he said it out loud. I think it did. It is heartbreaking. It actually gave him the out to not continue that conversation because he could have just been like, oh my God, this is like crazy. And like, just kind of like run off, you know, <laughs> like you could have done that. Um, right. Like it actually didn't have to continue with that scene. And I don't know that Henry would have been able to call foul that like, no, 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 like you can still get hard and everything. Like, no, dude, he was like totally like freaked out and panicked that he doesn't love his wife. He had a big, big moment here. Of course, you and I, following him back, him crying on Henrietta's lap and, you know, realizing like, this isn't about just you, you, you have two babies on the way and you're going to have to figure this out. So to me, he came back and recommitted to the marriage. Is that what you saw? I, I did. When he, when he cries into her lap and says, you know, I'll do better. And maybe she understood in the moment, or maybe when she thinks about it later, she'll understand. And I think that was heartfelt. I think he really did mean it. The question is, will he be able to actually live up to that? Avis is going to go calling again. 
the right. the assistant casting director is going to come calling again. You asked me a good question that I could not answer to you, which was what the hell with the fact that they showed him going off to the hospital, showed the the doctor wagging his finger. And the next time we see Henrietta, she's just like, I love you. How was your shoot? Like, and nothing like the whole idea that she would have thrown him out and the whole, I smell perfume on your dick, all that stuff. Just no, no mentions. Really weird for me. Uh, that was the, of the three episodes we have seen. It was the only thing that made me stop and go, I don't understand that. And that seems very off to me. That that seemed like a mistake to me. So unless there's something else more there that we just don't understand yet, seems too fucking bizarre. You're throwing him out to, to the point where you're giving yourself baby pains that you have to go to the hospital. <laughs> or contractions. <laughs> baby pains. It's the 1940s. It's baby okay. pains. The stork is bumping around and being very upset with her. Uh, yeah, so, so the point where she, you know, she's getting forced contractions because she's so upset at him and throwing him out. Now, not that much time could have come between these two events, but maybe. But even still, even if it was two months ago. It, it, unresolved. It was super unresolved. It was, right? the first, it was the first time we had seen them since that event. So whether or not in, re in the show, off camera, they have been working through it for two months, we haven't seen that. So it was very jarring as a viewer to have this whiplash moment where she is just almost Stepford wife supportive, maybe even distracted as he's coming in and spewing the new lie. You know, I think you said it better. Does the doctor's statement force you to be better or just lie better? I feel like lie better. <laughs> well, clearly it's gone with lie better. He has gone with the shoot went long instead of the gas station. I'm working real good there. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking idiot. It's so dumb. So, so dumb. Dumb. So dumb. I, I definitely feel like all that had to happen, honestly, was for her to push him off a little bit. Like when, when he came over and he was starting to say something, if she just said like, Jack, you know, back off. You know how I feel about what you're doing. Something like that, right? And then he starts crying, goes in her lap, and you right. see her face soften. That's mm -hmm. all we needed. Right. To see like, okay, she's just going to be like, I love you. I do believe in you. That kind of stuff. We could have seen that in just a couple scenes there. Maybe there was a weird editing thing or something that just, it was too subtle and it didn't convey. I agree. It really made me like him more that he had this come to Jesus moment, right? And no one, no one should be beyond redemption. A true hearted, sincere rejection of what he's done and choosing her and choosing them Hard, hard to say no, don't give him a second chance when you understand why he did it in the first place, I guess, maybe. It's not out of line for her to give him some sort of other chance here. However, I hope that that's not a common thing when we move forward, that the these side stories that are like their kind of home life parts, which almost nobody else has, because everyone else, they've coupled up the both people in the part in the couple are in the industry. So we don't have anybody else where you have one in the industry and one not in the industry that we get to see. So Henrietta stands alone as like the person not a part of all of this. She should be served better as a character. Her confusion, her patience, her need to understand what a weird life it is should be more on display and not just be like brushed by because that's a role, This the, the, the really understanding life is crazy in Hollywood role is a real actual role out there too. If Yeah, if you're not going to make her either super understanding of where he's coming from or super put out that this is not the life that I thought we were agreeing to, then why have her? We, we don't actually need to see him at home. So make it interesting. Let Make it compelling for him because the stakes are the same. He's still, 
he's still doing things that he doesn't want to be doing in order to further his career. Yeah. He's not so resigned as Ernie is to the lifestyle that it's not without its cost for him to do what he's doing separate from his marriage. She could have still been back in Missouri, you know? Right. She could have still, like, he could have just been like, maybe she came for a visit with that Amarone moment or something like that. And she is pregnant. All that stuff does happen. But there's no reason to have her and then treat her character as a background actor, if you will. I won't say that you're creating extra, but don't treat her like that. Like she has a role in this too. A supernumerary, please. A supernumerary. This was odd, but it was offset though. And in the end, I, I so appreciated what he was doing in this scene, but we need to rewind because we're still back at the party. There were some interesting Archie rock dick moments. What did you think of Archie showing clear jealousy to Ernie before his time with Dick and then going in and busting up Archie and Noel Coward about to get it on. I actually rewatched the the end portion of several times with him talking to Archie and saying that he loved him because I wasn't sure how I was supposed to read his behavior. However, I think that Archie was okay with it and that made me okay with it. If Archie was making like a screwed up face after, you know, they're dancing together and he was like, God, you're fucking us over here. I would have felt differently about it, but Archie seemed okay with it. So I was like, okay, maybe that's a little all right. I think his shock and surprise at seeing Archie quote unquote at work was very warranted. I mean, I think it's one thing to know that your significant other does something on the side. It's another thing to see it in your face. Really? Even when that's how they met? Yeah, I think even more so because you can imagine how great it felt when you did meet him. And so you kind of like know the attention that Archie's giving Noel. You've been on the receiving end of that as that first like client kind of relationship that you had. I think it's one of those like, don't ask, don't tell. I don't want to actually see you have to do it. I I just know that you have to pay the rent. So I'm going to try to be cool about it. But I I don't think you want to see it. You would, you like, if you had like a stripper girlfriend- would you go watch her strip and be cool with watching guys like put stuff down her pants and her have to act excited towards them? Or you'd be like, you know what? I know you do it. And that kind of makes me crazy enough, but like, I don't necessarily need to see it in my face. Uh, no, you're hundred percent correct. And, and I guess you're right. Archie was fine with it and he got the confession of love. And, and, and I think it was the first time Archie really kind of uh, allowed his feelings to flow also. You know, we, we talked even in, in this episode about how he was being the cooler cucumber. I don't think this was a huge step for Rock to admit that he loves Archie at the end of this episode. But I think it was crystallizing for Rock about how he felt about Archie that he did not like seeing Archie at work. You know, if he was if he was less committed, it wouldn't have bothered him as much. Yeah, I, I don't think he could handle it at all. Not no. even a little bit. No. And I, I couldn't either. Like, I mean, it would be one thing to say, I, I'm fine with you going to work and I and I but you know, I don't ever want to see it. And especially they didn't know he didn't know he was coming to the party. So I mean, imagine you're at a work thing and then you see, you know, you had this come up in West Wing, right? Where it's like he knew oh, yeah. she was a call girl, and mm-hmm. it's one thing to know it, and it's a completely other thing to see her in action, and then you want to barf in your mouth. Yeah, and he's totally not cool about it. Sam handles it in the very worst possible way. He embarrasses her. He makes a literal federal case about it. This one was much, much more uh, a Oz moment than <laughs> uh, than how it plays out for Sam and Lori. 
There's the little tickle, 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 tickle. Reimagine if your partner just was accepting and you guys could just say it out loud and then everybody's okay. Well, You're I right. Mean, that isn't how that goes down. No, I mean, and, and along the same lines of the tinkle, tinkle, tinkle moment about Archie being so cool about uh, Henry's mouth being wrapped around uh, Rock's sweet meat last week, <laughs> you know, because he understood why. I mean, okay, even if you're that understanding, it's still cool, cool. Well, and would Archie be that okay if he had to see it? If he was in the same room when it was happening, would he be cool with it? Or would it be a hell of a lot harder to deal with? Uh, that's fair. That's fair. Well, it depends on how much, you know, Archie, again, he was the cool one. How willing was he? would he be to confess his feeling? Archie, just shy of being left-handed, is having to hide virtually everything about himself in this mm -hmm. world. It would be interesting to see if he would have let those emotions crest to the top. Or is he so in control of his emotions that it wouldn't have bubbled out until later? Just a little side note before we leave, though. Noel Coward was played by Billy Boyd in this episode. And for you uh, Lord of the Rings fans, uh, Billy Boyd played Pippin. Oh, that's where I recognized him. I did recognize his little face. He was, uh, yeah, he was Pippin, uh, Elevensies and second lunches. But let's get to, I think, what one of the most important scenes of the episode were. Dick and Rock in the room. Rock strips down naked. He's standing there. He has the little boy moment where he says, will we talk about my picture at the after we're done, Mr. Samuels? And Dick, he gets cold feet. He can't go through with it. And he goes into a very long speech. Don't let the Henrys of the world turn you into something you're not. You will begin to lie who you, as to who you are. You will end up becoming something you don't recognize. I think that he realized the part that he plays in the breaking down of these young hopeful stars, he was sickened when he heard that really innocent voice be like, Mr. Samuels, he sounded like a little boy. It was mm -hmm. so earnest that I think that he just realized like, not only does he have a part, but holy shit, like Henry set this up. So, oh my God, Henry does all this shit to all these boys and he needs to stop and you need to stop letting him do this to you. So important that he, he, he demands Rock tell him his real name. You know, we're all pretending to be someone else. Henry is making you be someone else. I am pretending to be someone else so I can be Ace Amberg's number two. What's your real name? Roy Fitzgerald is is the real person there. And he calls him Roy then for the rest of the scene. Well, right after uh, Rock takes him and brings him into a big, adorable bear hug. So sad when the young when a young person has to hold an older person in that way is always very emotional because you would think the older person would have the emotional maturity, but some, you know, when they lose it and then rock who the only thing he maybe is really in touch with are his feelings grabs Dick. Cause he knows he needs that hug. And then on his arm, Dick tells him, don't become me, Roy. Oh, oh. the, the expression of loneliness that I felt from Dick was so real and so honest. It goes past sexuality. A lot of times you hear executive level people who have to be on all the time say, basically, this is all they can do. You know, we can put them in the workaholic kind of category, but also, you know, they have sacrificed everything else about themselves for this life. And in order to be there, he has to not only hide his sexuality, but just he can't do anything. He just has to be lonely and work. And I felt all of that. It was like, oh, my God, you did want to give him a hug and be like, 
you're doing your best, <laughs> you know? And I love that for all of the innocence that Rock brings to this role, I feel like he is honestly wanting to make Dick feel better. He has that just mm-hmm. instinctual reaction of like wanting to comfort him. That gives you that like, oh my God, he is just that innocent. You know, it's not an act. It's not an intelligence issue. Right. This is true empathy. I was just saying, he's a, he's a true empath. He is making emotional connections with Dick here. The scene goes from being about careers. It ends up being about who you are versus who the world wants you to be. I, I think it's so great that the final line here is Rock telling him, Nothing happened tonight. You are a good man. I think that's yes. Im- that's important for Dick to to hear because I don't think Dick thinks that right now. I think Dick thinks he is as bad as the Henrys of the world who would set this up, who would destroy young boys this way. And I, I think it's important for Rock to tell Dick and for Dick to hear. I think that's huge. It's interesting for the quote unquote sort of victim in the situation to be the one to like offer almost forgiveness to say like, Things could have gone really bad, but I wasn't hurt in this. You didn't hurt me in this exchange. In fact, you have been kind and good to me. It was really important to be that forgiving is the right word. For sure. And and the, the effects of this night are not lost on Dick because we fast forward to the next day and Ray, after telling Camille that she is right for the part, he is going to fight for her to be in peg. He goes to see Dick and Ellen and confesses to being half Filipino. Uh, he tells him why he didn't admit it, um, and then gives him an ultimatum. He gives he gives the studio an ultimatum. Either Camille gets a screen test because she deserves one, because she's the best actress that Ace has, or I don't direct your picture. And he walks out very respectfully. He doesn't storm out. He doesn't throw a hissy fit. He says, thank you, and he leaves. Very polite. Very much shocked Dick. His face was like, what? Did he just walk out? <laughs> right. But no, but I, you know, I think we're still in the Oz moment. This is one thing I didn't say. You know, when we talk about the Oz moments in the in the show, this was the scene with Dick and Rock was very Oz. That's not how this plays out in the real world on, on any number of levels, right? Not in the Hollywood we know anyway. What does Dick say to Ellen? Oh, he was all, he's right and you know it. <laughs> yeah. He says, we're going to do this. And not yeah. because it's good business, which it is, is was raised part of Ray's point anyway. Um, it's you don't know what kind of business it is because we make the business. But Dick says they're going to do it because Ray is right. That's the mm-hmm. that's the reason to do it, and that's a fucking Oz moment if there ever was one for Hollywood or any <laughs> other big business in America. Very true. Very true. So much of these rewrites so not realistic. And for the world that we actually live in, but really fun to see play out. I, I I loved seeing this was the next day Dick. The next day Dick. Leftover Dick, yeah. <laughs> He's he continues the conversation with Ellen that he began with Rock the night before. That he's yeah. sick he's sick of just taking it and not fighting for people anymore. And he brings up uh, anime Wong. I love that Ellen and Dick had that rapport where she was like, I could kiss you, like all that stuff. Like it was all, it was very heartwarming and very much like you felt like Dick is not going to be on his own in this quest, that Ellen's right behind him. They're going to really work on this. And it feels like it could work, you know, just because you have buy-in from other people already. Well, interesting. Yes, I agree with that, that he won't be alone with this. He'll be with Ellen. 
But remember the conversation with Ellen and Avis in the night before Avis is egging Ellen on to just to not die alone and then just go fuck Dick. Ellen's got feelings for Dick. Interesting how that all maybe goes and plays out. Do you think we get into like a super awkward, like she tries to make some sort of move or something and he has to like not go through with it? Or do you think like, like how did, how do her feelings get revealed to him? I think Chekhov's sexuality has been shown in this episode. So either she makes a move and he rebuffs her in some way that is awkward or she sees him with someone Maybe she sees him at the gas station. Something something is going to happen. I no reason to have the conversation with Avis and Ellen telling him to telling her to go fuck Dick uh, just to get it over with, and then have the I could kiss you moment at the end. They have mm-hmm. to set that up. That, otherwise, it's just odd writing. I vote that she makes a move. I think that that's that's the way it has to go, right? I think so too. That's the one. That's the one that seems organic to the me most too. Most humiliating. Oh, <laughs> uh, also that for sure. But let's get to the very final scene, because uh, all the good feelings I may have felt for Henry evaporates like the cold dew in the morning sun. This was so gross. The entire setup of talking about his lost love, which I looked it up and Trent was a real actor and they really did live together. Henry and Trent. I just felt like the way that he lured him back in and was all rocky, like, you know, you just bring something out of me. Then to open that side door <laughs> and act as if I'm going to present you with some friends and everything's going to be okay and I'm going to take care of you properly and then have these two guys in their underwear and I'm just going to watch while you guys get acquainted. My stomach barfed so hard. I was so grossed out. I just felt like you are the worst. You know, you you make people feel safe with you and you just immediately just pull it away. I hate it so much. He's so gross. The worst thing he's done in this series so far. And that's on top of, I'll represent you, but I got a second dick. It's just the thing that I, it's just one of my things. This was so next level horrible because it was so manipulative how he started off. You know, I've almost been okay with it in the same vein as it's just one of my things. Like he presented the dick sucking last week. If he had started off with no pretense, no you're someone I can believe in, someone who needs me to be the best I can be. That's a fucking powerful sentiment to tell anyone. That's not words you should throw around lightly. Certainly not someone words you should throw around lightly, but for someone like Rock, who is all emotions. And that's fucking, that's like grade A manipulative. The, the amount of grooming really made me sick. I mean, it was really bad. This is the kind of sexual predators that we hear about today that we hear actresses coming forward, this is what they're talking about, right? Emotional manipulation of this level that leads to all you have to do first is have a threesome and let me watch. Irredeemable. I I don't know how he can come back as any kind of salvageable character after that. For someone as innocent and as lonely as Rock is to, to offer friendship, to offer friendship and then snatch that away. And it turns out it's just like this, this, forced sexual act for his entertainment is oh my god it's it's so cruel it's just cruel one of the two actors that he introduces them to rory calhoun actually was a real person uh went on to be a b like a b-lister movie star but had a, a tv show on cbs called the texan for a couple of years mm. uh, interestingly produced by desi lu 
Disney Little Productions. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. That's funny. The whole thing, I just felt terrible for all of them. And especially after he had been given the pep talk from Dick about like, don't let Henry continue to do stuff to you. And Rock goes in there and he's just given all these lines about how life's going to be better between Henry and Rock and things are just going to be so much, you know, just much more cool. I'm going to take care of you so much better. And then to pull that, it's what, when I, when I said last week, you know, I would worry about what the next level shit is he's going to do to me. I mean, this is next level shit, right? And, and I'm scared for him. If I didn't know that Rock Hudson continued to have a career after this, there is no way in this situation that I would think this guy doesn't like commit suicide or do something really drastic because this level of like betrayal and just messing with his head, it seems hard to believe that Rock continues to have any type of career. Or, or and continues to be represented by Henry. I mean, I know. <laughs> I mean, and it's to say nothing of the fact that Rock now bathed in the love of a, of a confessed love with uh, with uh, with Archie and a relation like a formal relationship now with him just hours later the next morning now has to go home and tell him what happened or not tell him which is worse worse for someone like Rock who will carry that around like an anchor in his heart Henry Henry is breaking Rock here for sure breaking rock there's so many things that you've said tonight when you're like it's like Rock and Dick and then he's like breaking rock like it's it's weird how that name really works it's not as bad as my she tried the front door so she started to go in the back door <laughs> and that didn't work out i just i shut that down then i was like the side door make any sense i don't know side door but guys we've, like, been, we've been hatch? we have been talking for almost two hours because there was a lot to unpack here but a lot happened i think this sets up the rest of the season in a really meaningful way i think we have a uh Maybe not a crystal clear board, Caroline, but I think we have a good idea of what the chess board looks like now. I think that's probably true. I definitely think that we called it right that Peg, the movie, was going to be the crossroads for everybody. I didn't see the Claire twist coming, so I'm excited about adding her into the Jack storyline and the fact that she is Avis and Ace's daughter is going to add a whole lot of complexity to her character that just wasn't there. Like I was very ready to just blow her off. Right. Now knowing how many connections she has to Jack and all the different ways that she could affect this storyline, I'm pretty fascinated by that. I don't know how Henry continues on with this with this business that somebody doesn't punch him in the face. You know? I, mean, I feel like the end of episode four is going to be like, this is my horse trigger, Rock. I'm going to need you to... <laughs> fuck the horse and let me watch for a little bit. <laughs> you know, like, it, I feel like it's almost, it, it, the next thing becomes, you know, two suggest the pattern, three confirms it. I just don't see where it goes next. You're right. I mean, my right. God, if you don't get into like dogs and cats and horses, what else are you going to start doing? The emotional and mental and everything abuse is just, uh, it's just so ratcheted up. Yeah, the next thing Henry makes Rock do will be the breaking point of, is, is this just sadistic humor? Or is this guy just completely fucked in the head and has no limits? Okay, I have to ask you, does the does the dance party at his house count as number two with the spooning? Does that count as number two? And then the surprise friends count as number three? No, I think I think it would have counted as number two if he had forced him to have sex, knowing how uncomfortable and tired he was. He danced up to that weird line. I think he sashayed in his scarf. literally up to, danced up to yeah, it. <laughs> he literally danced up to that line and then didn't cross over it. I'd say the... The end episode threesome is uh, is the thing, which you know, again, the the blowjob was the end of episode two. 
the, th- the forced threesome at the end of episode three. Who knows what we have in episode four? Things are just getting crazier and crazier in Hollywood. You know, welcome to Dreamland. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thanks for listening to Welcome to Dreamland, the Hollywood podcast. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.